So for me, if I can turn on the TV, I can find Wi-Fi and I can get into the house. Like I don't have high standards. For me, I just always am perplexed about how many people miss the basics. Once you get to the first 30 minutes of somebody's arrival, your like likelihood to get a five-star review if they haven't bothered you about something is like astronomically higher. So you just gotta nail first 30 minutes. How hard is that? Lightning struck in an open plane And we forgot this old city's name See your breath on window pane Let's just talk till it strikes again On my way through I saw you on my way Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to episode 11 of this season. This is the third bonus episode, Scott. They're getting lucky here. Uh, titled, Our Journey to Short-Term Rental Success. And joining me today is someone who knows a thing or two about short-term rental success, but that's not all. It's also someone who developed the EcoTube, US patent 7,410,054, and whose family created the first internet yellow pages called comfine.com. I had to work on that a few times before this. Way back in 1994, Scott Shatford, founder of one of my favorite tools in the whole world, the the tool that I use the most when it comes to short-term rentals and sourcing deals, AirDNA. Scott, thanks for joining me. A huge welcome. Holy smokes, Trav, you did your research. I had no idea. I was going to be talking about EcoTubes here today, but that's Digging awesome. Digging into the archives. I mean, I've been hyping up this episode. I didn't tell anyone who was coming on. I just kept saying, we've got an interview with someone who I'm super excited to chat about. And now they know it's the creator of the EcoTube here <laughs> on the EPOP podcast. Uh, well, yeah. At last. Long at last, huh? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you, yeah. it's cool because as I was digging into it, I mean, you have a history of entrepreneurship. Um, so, and that's always fun, I think, for for our listeners to listen to, for me to talk about. Where where did that come from? Like, th- that seems pretty cool that it was a little built into your family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my, both my parents were entrepreneurs from day one. You know, my dad was actually a stay-at-home dad for a few years, a few formative years when I was like, you know, maybe eight to 11, something like that. And he was a computer geek and always messing around with different things. He was always buying every like gaming system and tearing it apart and reverse engineering it and trying to make it into an exercise biker. He was... Uh, uploading. He was having me at eight years old upload every lottery ticket winning number into a database he was creating to sort of sell like winning number like software to people trying to buy lottery tickets. And he had me like soldering things together like slave labor in the garage when I was like 11 years old. And so, you know, from a really early age, my dad was an entrepreneur, he was a computer software engineer, and always had some uh, crazy idea that he was roped me into from a pretty early age. So it was definitely built into my DNA pretty, pretty early. Is that something that you then ever ran away from at all? Because that could kind of have two different effects, right? It's like, oh my gosh, this is ingrained in me. Like I'm going to fall in the footsteps or, oh my gosh, my dad had me soldering stuff and putting in these lottery numbers. I never want to deal with software again. (laughs) You know, I mean, there was always a passion there. And I think just being able to see that there was a path outside of this sort of traditional corporate path, right? And like moving up the corporate ladder, it was always, you know, interesting to see that there was a different divergent path to that. 
Um, but I don't think I ran away from it. I just think I, the reality of how hard it was, you know, coming out of college with no, you know, capital, no real idea how to sort of structure a business, operate a business. You know, I felt I had to jump into like traditional corporate American and learn a thing or two before I felt like ready to go and venture out on my own and do my own thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I was watching a bunch of 80 movies recently and I realized that was the thing in the eighties, you know, look at like uh, Goonies, you know, with Gadget or, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. Like everything in that sort of decade was about like, you know, the crazy inventor dad or person, right? And like, there's definitely a sense of that in, in my family that there was always uh, an opportunity or a thing to invent or a thing to create um, and something I definitely took with me. Yeah, you, you, you sparked a little bit of me. Like I was thinking back to the future, right? And I just remember being a kid being like, why is no one inventing this hoverboard? Like, come on, people, someone invent this hoverboard. Um, yeah, yeah, the, the nutty professor dad, right? The, the eclectic, eccentric scientist who's in the basement tinkering around. Um, that, that, was, uh, that was your upbringing. That's cool. That's cool. So then what, what got you into the short-term rental game because that's obviously you have created software now so that's almost like hey bringing it full circle but before that you were just getting into the game because you're like hey here's an opportunity to to take this path that is less conventional than like you said the corporate ladder let's just work it up get a salary type thing totally yeah, so I spent almost a decade in corporate America, almost at one single company, you know, learning how to operate a large company, a multi-billion dollar consulting firm. So I spent, you know, a good decade, you know, sort of in a pretty cushy corporate job, climbing the ladder, right? Not working too hard, but progressing pretty rapidly through that organization. Um, you know, new CFO came in. I don't know. He didn't like me, so he let me go. Uh, and so I was sort of left without like really, a, you know, what I thought of an applicable skill set to many other jobs or organizations at that time, to be honest, you know, started looking around for a new job uh, that was going to pay me, you know, whatever I was making there, which was pretty healthy salary at the time and couldn't find anything. So, you know, sort of had to go to that, like sort of that back to that hustler, you know, guy, you know, entrepreneur trying to figure out like, how am I going to pay the bills? And, you know, how am I going to kind of recreate a lifestyle that, you know, maybe is more what I had dreamt about, you know, in my thirties uh, rather than slaving away for the man. Uh, and so it was a cool moment in time. You know, I, I sort of had three months of looking at, well, actually they gave me a severance package of 11 months severance of my normal right. salary. So okay. I was like, I got a, I got a year to do whatever I've always wanted to do. And, you know, pretty quickly said, Hey, I want to go travel, do a one-way ticket to Bangkok, book the ticket, figure it out. And it's going to be, it's leads in 10 days. Right. And, uh, so that's, that's what I did. And I was looking to put, uh, you know, to put my stuff into storage and scrambling to find some place to store all my junk. You know, my neighbor told me, Hey, like, you know, have you heard about Airbnb? Like, I like you as a neighbor. Don't leave me forever. Uh, you know, why don't you just put yourself on uh, Airbnb? I'll manage the property for you and I'll be here when you get back. And so that was the first time I'd heard about Airbnb, which is the end of 2012. Um, and okay. so, so exactly yeah, pretty what, early. I mean, yeah, pretty early. Yeah. And, and, and it was, it was, it was, it was the, golden years. I think it was just super easy. Nobody had any expectations of what to expect. Everybody was just like enamored by the concept and the idea and didn't care if you didn't have a clean bathroom. They were like, this is so cool. Right. Uh, you know, that, that definitely has changed over the last you know, nine, 10 years. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I went to, I went to Bangkok, um, and my, I was managing my property sort of remotely, and I just was getting like 95% occupancy rate on the property. I was making like 
uh, $7,500 a month on my $3,000 a month apartment in Santa Monica, California. And I was like, this is too easy, too good to be true. Uh, I don't know how this is possible. Um, but yeah, I got back from that trip a few months later and sort of that's when it was, I looked for a job a little bit more, didn't really find anything I liked. And I was like, well, man, if I'm making like 4,000 bucks a month on this silly one bedroom apartment, why don't I just get 10 of those and uh, let's forego this whole job sitch. Uh, and so that's sort of what I started doing. You know, I just started renting master leasing apartments in Santa Monica, you know, furnishing them with a credit card, earning all that money back within two to three months, getting another property, another property. It got to about to like eight properties in a couple of years out in Santa Monica and sort of had a nice little, little side hustle. Um, and so like, yeah, that was sort of like, you know, how I got into it sort of as a fluke, like a lot of people have entered short-term rentals, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I'll rent a side bedroom or I've got a second home I don't use. And then they're like, you sort right. of see the money, you see the opportunity and you're like, well, this is more than a hobby, right? This could be like a legit profession here. Uh, yeah, I so- think it, it is. It's, it's surprising, right? I mean, even... I mean, maybe it's not surprising to people who are listening who have heard you talk, me talk, who, who have like done research before they jump in. But we were the same way where, okay, obviously we knew Airbnb were this, was a thing. It was, you know, it was in the ecosystem per se. You know, when we first started hosting, certainly when we started renting, it was very new. We're talking in those same years, 2011, 2010, like really early renting there. Um, but when we started hosting, it was, well, we want to travel, so maybe we'll just put it up. I'm sure no one will rent it. And then the first time it happens, you're like, huh, oh, okay, this is pretty cool. I just made more money than I spent on my trip. Oh, this this can be a thing. So for you then at that point, all right, you're at eight units. And like you said, you're you're doing well, you're making money. It's pretty easy, right? I'm sure you ran into some headaches and things like that. But was there, what made you then say, all right, I'm going from side gig even if it's paying full-time amount and I don't have to do anything to saying, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to build a business around this. Cause that's a, that's a, that's a big leap there. That's a bigger step. Yeah. There, there were a couple of things. One was specific to my market, which was, you know, my market was getting regulated at the time. And I could see a little bit of that future state where I needed to diversify one, I needed to make sure I was in, not in Santa Monica, which, you know, was having pretty strict regulations put in place. So I needed to start looking outside of Santa Monica to like how to diversify, you know, my locations and, and, and spread out my risk in terms of regulatory risk. That was, that was the initial thought, right? was, uh, this could be illegal. <laughs> I need to think about you know, what are my other options? Um, you know, and in doing so, you know, I, you know, went back to my skill set as a data analyst, business intelligence guy, big data nerd, right? And I was like, hey, like, let me go look at the data. Let me go figure out how to sort of scrape some properties in California. Let me see where people are getting as good of margins as I'm getting on, on these properties. Let me see if I'm going north or south or inland or whatever. Um, and so I started scraping it really for my own purpose, right? Uh, it was sort of to help me like, you know, understand my competition locally, but mostly just trying to figure out how to invest outside of Santa Monica. Um, and that's where it all started really, was just trying to figure out how to get smarter about my own operations and how to expand my operation. Um, then what happened, you know, I sort of called a bunch of the people I knew locally that were doing uh, Airbnbs. I had this big data set of everybody that was in California about how many properties they had and how I thought they're performing. So I just started cold calling the, the largest operators in California and saying, you know, hey, like, what are you doing? How are you performing? Like, what don't you have? Like, what tools are you using? Right. And all those sort of questions. And it, it sort of became pretty clear at that point in time that, 
you know, everybody was flying blind. Nobody knew the hell they were doing, but everybody was being really successful and everybody was trying to keep it a secret, right? They're like, this is like mm. too good to be true. It's not going to last forever. And so like, we're going to keep this super hush hush. Don't tell anybody about, about what's going on here. Um, and and what yeah, year was I, that? When was that? Like 2014, probably. Okay. Yeah. 2014 okay. timeframe. Um, but yeah, I just sort of decided to disregard <laughs> that advice and sort of, you know, package all this information and really, really release it to the public, you know, really thinking about this, this movement as being the sort of democratization of logic, right? Really thinking about like this, like power to the people concept, right? Like if I could compete against the Hilton and Marriott next door, you know, why can't anybody, and why can't anybody compete for anybody who's coming to your city, you know, for, for that sort of lodging revenue or for that demand coming to your market, and it was a pretty interesting concept, right? Um, and so definitely, you know, the whole concept of DNA has been like, how do we get the data, the products, the intelligence into the hands, into, you know, the people at the same price and the same quality that, you know, Hilton or Marriott is going to have access to that data. What, what were some of those early years, let's say 2014, your 2015, you're cold calling people, you're scraping data. Were there any big like ahas to you where you learn, oh my gosh, this person's doing this and I never thought of it or, or wow, you know, this area is even hotter than I ever imagined, like preconceived notions that were proven wrong or just things you weren't aware of? I think I was limited by budget early on. And so when I talked to some of these guys that were converting hotels, right, into Airbnbs, or they were buying the eight bedroom house by Disneyland. You know, there was some of that aha moment. Like this isn't just like scrappy little guys with a credit card, you know, master leasing a few apartments. Like there's people putting real capital and can really buy a $20 million hotel and turn it into an epic Airbnb operation. Right. And so I think that was sort of the aha moment, which this wasn't really a lodging alternative this wasn't sort of just going to be competitive to the hotel stay, that this was really going to be a real estate movement, right? That this was going to really help people reassess the value of what a piece of property is worth as it sort of moves from like a residential valuation to a commercial valuation of, of the homes. And so that was sort of the, the, the bigger aha moment was like, man, like if we had really had people really have capital and like real capital comes into the market, like the way that homes are valued, the way a multifamily building is valued, the way everything could be valued could be, could be different long-term. And so I think it just sort of got me a little bit more out of my, my budget constraints and into like, you know, what, what actual investors would be thinking about as they sort of scaled a larger enterprise. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you talk about that realization in 2014, 2015, because I think recently, and, and by that I'll say, let's say pre-pandemic kind of 2018, maybe even 2017, you start hearing rumblings that you know, you're getting a lot of companies coming in trying to do short-term rentals at scale. You know, Saunder, uh, what is Hey Alfred? I think they might be bankrupt. Now. You might know better than me. But like you, you got a lot, like you've got a lot of big time firms coming in saying these are like this is our entire business model and, and skating by on pretty thin margins a lot of times. But to hear you say it, and it makes sense to me, right? Like I just wasn't in the ball game then, but it makes sense to me that 2014, 2015, there were still people doing it. It just, I don't think had hit the public consciousness the same way it has now with cities now saying, all right, we got we to really step up some regulations. Um, it's not scrappy little guys all the time. It, it is 
multi-billion dollar companies with funding coming in at this point. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it's, it's been an interesting evolution. Like you mentioned, there's, for, for whatever reason, everybody who gets into this, you know, they, the companies that get into this see the easiest way to scale enterprises through the property management component, right? It just seems like the most natural sort of more subscription-based revenue way to scale to 10,000 properties and create a nice business. You know, I don't think anybody that scaled the property management business that I've talked to that's, you know, a you know, thousand plus properties is very happy about that decision. <laughs> I, really I wish, yeah. like when you say that, my stomach is like doing flips. Like that sounds horrible. I don't care how much money you were. I was making. I don't want to manage like the people managing the property managers, and I certainly don't want to. Like that's just not what I want to do. That's not the fun part for me. It's for me. It's about the acquiring and creating the experience versus. The, the operations and logistics. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I advise for a couple of companies like a vault stays now a pretty big property management company. And, you know, Sean Bruner over there always, you know, tells me that he wished he took, would have taken my advice to like, stop doing property management, just buy 25 properties, operate those properties. I'd be making more money doing it that way. And I'd have a lot more fun. Uh, you know, all I'm doing is putting out 1000 fires every single day at every property mm-hmm. with every guest and every homeowner. But like, you know, it, it, there's a, there's a good business, successful business there, but you know I've always believed in sort of like this much leaner, uh, full ownership end to end. You own the property, you own the management, you own the revenue management. You know there's a lot of like juice to squeeze out of it. If you sort of own the experience end to end, you own the asset. Uh, there's a lot of money to be had in just having five properties, ten properties. There's a really nice business to be to be had there, and uh, so that's still sort of like how I think about who I'm building my products for and those sort of entrepreneurs, you know, kind of five to 15 is sort of my sweet spot on using my platform. Yeah. And I, for me, I think anyone listening is if you've listened all the way through this season, or even if you're just listening to this one, you're, you're interested in real estate, right? Whether you've invested already or, or haven't, or just at the phase where you want to start. And for me, the beauty of short-term rentals is it's like the sexiest, most creative part of real estate. Now, you know, there might be someone who would, argue with me, but it's like long-term rentals. Okay. Maybe it's fun to acquire, get them in. Boom, boom, boom. You know, there's all types of things you can do with real estate. But for me, my draw to short-term rentals was this allows me as someone who loves traveling, right. And, and experiences to give an experience to someone else and to be creative from end to end, right? Like the creativity and, and the sexy part of the process is from the beginning all the way to the end versus, oh, just at the beginning. And now it's, you know, drudgery. Um, and so I think for people listening and you and I seem to be on the same page, it it's the most fun part to it because you can really reimagine what a property is going to be like. And and you can change it up based on who you want there and what type of experience you want to have and what area you're in. Yeah, to- totally agree. I mean, I had a very similar experience. There's a lot of creativity involved in it, right? Like, you know, what are you going to buy? How are you going to decorate it? Who are you gonna, how are you going to set it up? How are you going to market it? You know, what does your customer look like? Who, where are they coming from? How long are they going to be staying? Like, you know, I, it's just my nature of curiosity was just like very much like, you know, there's a lot of competition. How do I create this product that's going to speak, you know, directly to this type of person, right? Is this a weekend warrior? Is this a long-term stay sort of person? Is this who, who am I 
decorating for and like sometimes I put in a keyboard and like a guitar and I'd make like a little drum there and just be like hey this is like the music place right and just try to find the niche and like try to market to those people I I, I love the creativity of it you know there's definitely a, a fatigue part when you're in like year four and you're on like you know stay 2000 you're like all right, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's sort of run its course a little bit. So like, how do I hand off some of this guest communication? So I, I stopped profiling people from different countries and stuff like, you know, like not, 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 not enjoying the experience as much, but I definitely, there's a lot of creativity and fun parts of that sort of setup process and getting it to like full performance, right. All the way up to speed. I, I really like that part. For you, because you mentioned like your, you know, what you're building or, or kind of the mindset that you go into when you're building air DNA or, or continuing to build air DNA is that entrepreneur five to 15 to 20 units, what have you, um, who's using this as a conduit for most people. And, and this is what we espouse is like using it as a conduit to then leave their regular job or replace their income, even if they don't leave their job or get money on top. So they're retiring early, whatever this, this idea of they're getting freedom out of it, right? They're, they're cash flowing because they like real estate and they're getting freedom out of it. What does that look like for you? Cause now you've been in it for a while. So your portfolio, you can be as, you can give us as many specifics as you want. I'd love, love that. But what is it, what are you looking for now? What does your portfolio look like as an owner and a host? Yeah, you know, AirDNA has become a pretty uh, big time-consuming job <laughs> lately, right? And so that's that's dictated how I've invested in the space. So it's, it's usually passively. It's usually through some sort of REIT where I'm sort of distributing my investment across 20 properties, something like that, uh, taking only maybe 10% of each of those properties. And so it still keeps me in the game. It keeps me really interested in particular markets. It still like, you know, lets me, you know, get into the financials and, and like, you know, sort of work on that, but in a much more passive way. You know, we keep looking at the markets that we think are incredible and too good to be true. And, you know, it's just, it's not that much work. It's just a little bit more work than like I want to be having to deal with on top of my day-to-day job. So I've tried to sign up my wife, my wife to be the real estate investor. And I, you know, she's definitely uh, poking around and thinking about making some, but I don't actually actively own anything outright my, myself at the moment, but sort of passively through companies like Stadia Alexander or other little sort of tiny like REITs uh, that I, I own sort of passively at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, well, it is. It is a lot of work, like you said. I, I enjoy the process, but there, there's a if you're if you're buying them yourself and overseeing any part of it, whether that just be buying and renovating, uh, like that's what we do. We'll buy, we'll renovate some, we will offhand like hand off the property management because that is a part. I mean, even the house that I'm in right now that we live in, when we when we go away, it's like, it's in the hands of a property manager and people think I'm crazy. Like, oh, you're giving up that percentage. I said, that is the best money I pay every time. Like, I don't want to deal with it when I'm in Mexico and I get a call about someone locked in a bathroom. Why do I want to deal with that? You know? Right. Um, yeah, I definitely remember traveling and having that sort of, uh, that Airbnb chime. I think I still have nightmares about it. And you know, somebody just checked in. You're like, no, not the chime. That means like they don't know the Wi-Fi. They're locked out. They can't find the key. Like, no, leave me alone. It's 2 a.m. Yeah, we had so. a big kind of, uh, not a debate, but uh, on, on a panel at the Bigger Pockets conference I was running when we were talking about the short-term rentals, uh, I was the only one out of five that that didn't self-manage. And they were all trying to convince me like, no, self-manage, self-manage. I said, listen, 
I was in Mexico. A kid got locked in the bathroom. I was on a date. I get a phone call and it's a kid who's locked in the bathroom. I have to call the Philadelphia Fire Department from Mexico. I don't want to deal with that. I don't care. Like I'll pay someone a hundred dollars to deal yeah. with that. Right. Um, yeah. And, and again, yeah, it was that like, it was that dread anytime the phone rang or I got the Airbnb yeah. ding, I'm like, this is not worth any amount of money. This isn't why I get into this. So um, obviously everyone makes their own decision. We did a whole episode this season. If you guys haven't listened to about what, you know, how to consider whether you should self-manage or not. And we did for a while to, to learn that we didn't want to do it. I think there's some validity in that. Um, yeah. Something just to add there, like, you know, I liked doing it. So I knew what an optimal, like what it could do perfectly run, you know? Yeah. So I would get in there and make sure every guest communication was in 30 seconds that every, that the door, the place was always clean, that it was always ready. Revenue management was dialed in and like, I would do it for three, four months and say, okay, cool. This is like what it can do. Now here are the keys and keep it at that number. <laughs> yep. and it goes below that number. Let's, let's have a chat. Right. And so like, I like to create the benchmark of like what I thought the property could do and then hand off once I thought it was dialed in. Yep. I agree. There's a lot of value in doing it yourself to know what's a good job and, and what people are encountering. And, and then, you know, when you're, when you got someone in there who needs to either level up or, or get out, um, you, you mentioned this, like some of these areas too good to, to be true or like, oh my gosh, look what these numbers are doing. What are some of the areas that you're talking about? Like for you, what are ones that you look at and you think, I can't believe they're doing these type of numbers? Yeah, I'm actually Googling my own blog post so I can make sure I got the whole list. But the Coachella Valley is always been interesting. Joshua Tree specifically over the last year is just putting up numbers that don't make any sense right and like honestly you say it to like normal traditional real estate investors and there's like you're smoking crack there's no way that something's like a 28 cap right and that's just you can't that's not a thing right uh and so that that market's been really really hot um you know there's been a lot of these markets like around la where people are trapped they're usually going they're usually going to hawaii or they're usually going to mexico and now they're like i'm gonna go to big bear or i'm gonna go to palm springs right and so you've got 15 million people with very little options driving two hours from town and so you sort of see that just in all these little pockets whether it's around like new york city or you know the hamptons had a ridiculous year i went to buy in the hamptons but you know you see that being the demand driver of like where things just don't make sense right like even the ozarks wasn't really on the map last year and now that market looks incredible or like broken bow oklahoma i'm looking at the numbers like what where is that how have i never heard of broken bow uh and so there's just a lot of these you know lake town river town beach towns that sort of were sleepy and now they're the hottest place on earth you know, we have a great blog post. I think it's updated maybe three or four months ago. And that I, I have like total faith religion in that report. Like we don't hold a lot back, you know, from like where we think are the best cities. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of more details on like how we come up with those, those cities. But, you know, a lot Do of that's think just based on- yeah. that'll change? Do you think that'll change? Because uh, we're in a market. So we, we found this town in North Carolina, right? We knew we wanted to live here. Same thing you're saying, like people coming from California, coming from New York, basically coming from anywhere to say, I want a more remote experience, whether that means to come and stay or whether that means investors coming because now they can work remote um, and, they, and they want to, and they find it and they buy a house here. And then they're like, Whoa, these numbers are incredible. Boom, 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 boom. 
Do you think, obviously it's been driven some of the places you're talking about, mountain towns, river towns, coastal towns, uh, being driven a lot by the pandemic and people wanting to get out of cities. Do you see that correcting or do you think that it is indicative of a bigger trend of people saying, nope, like we are, you know, this is the type of thing that we're going to do like for, for a bit of the long haul and by long haul, obviously everything's relative, but where do you see that landing? Yeah. I mean, I think long haul is, is the good word because I think, you know, people thought that this, this virus thing was going to be, you know, solved and done by now. I think we realize that this is going to be a long haul <laughs> virus. Mm. Right. And so I think, you know, no matter, yeah, I think no matter how we think about travel, it's going to become closer. It's going to be more remote. It's going to be this way for call it two years. Right. And so, you know, what happens three years from now, you know, crystal balls are very foggy these days. Nobody knows how to predict. Right. I think what we can say is that human behavior is all about habits and people that start to travel a certain way, start to find joy in cheaper, closer, you know, off the beat, you know, sort of locations, more unique stays, like that's something that sticks around. Right. And like a lot of people get in this mindset, like I don't have to go to like Budapest to have like a great, you know, cool travel experience. Like I didn't know this like place right down the street was super funky and like, you know, all these like mud hut homes and like, that's super cool too. Right. And so I think people are sort of exploring their backyards in ways that they had never had before. I think that habit sticks um, for a long time to come. You know, I thought we, you know, we thought international travel was going to pick up, you know, now, and that's not right. And so I definitely think we're in for, you know, one more year of, you know, pretty similar travel patterns to what we saw last year. Yeah. I think too, one of it's like, I don't have to get in a, on a plane, right. Uh, you know, it's like, I can get in a car and go no matter where you are in the country, in the U S you get in a car and you drive three hours, you're going to be in a different it's going to look different. It's going to feel different unless maybe you're in West Texas and you're just still driving through West Texas, but you know, you could get in the car and, uh, and, and go and three, four hours, you're, you're going to see a lot of things that you, that you don't see back home. Um, I think that's something that's sticking around too, because, uh, you know, with young kids and I think, do you have young kids as well or kids? Yeah. Yeah. I got kids five and seven still, yeah. still young. Yep. Still young. So it, I think that's another thing as parents where people are saying, you know, I, I'm driven to international travel. I want to take my kids internationally. Is it way easier for me to hop in the car and to go to Florida than it is for me to get in a plane and, you know, go to even somewhere as close as Costa Rica? Yeah, it's way easier. Right. And so totally. um, I think you made a good point. People get people build habits quickly, right? Um, we think it's like, oh, to go back to normal, but it's like, no, this is the new normal. And, and a lot of the stuff that'll happen will, will stay. A cool point that I wanted to bring up, because we hit this home in our season, you talked about unique stays. And I think that to me is one of the trends that A, isn't going anywhere and B, in the last year, year and a half has just completely changed the idea when it comes to short-term rentals is either building from the ground up or creating unique stays. You've probably seen a lot of that as well. Yeah, we have. Um, and I wish I had more experience in it directly because it's definitely the hottest trend we see in like increased supply, demand. You know, we sort of categorize this unique stay as all 
you know, yurts and igloos and whatever the crazy categories are in Airbnb. But it's definitely the fastest growing segment on the, on the platform right now. Um, you know, I think Airbnb generally used to be alternative and that used to be interesting and that used to be memorable. And now that's just not memorable anymore. Staying at somebody's house, that's like old hat, right? Like done that for five years. And so people are keep, you know, keep looking for something that's more memorable, right? Different, Instagrammable, right? And so I think it just c- continues to get more custom, more weird uh, as time goes on, as people are just looking for something different. And if you can build a treehouse right now, you're gonna be you're gonna be rich because <laughs> like I, you know, people love a treehouse day, and they're just like on fire in terms of demand. It's, it's incredible. And we talk about that, right? People like short-term rentals because of creativity. Like, here's a chance to be creative, right? I mean, you're you're not gonna build a hotel that has 80 tree houses because at some point it's like, well, you know, that's a lot of tree houses, but can you build one or two or three and, and just absolutely kill it? Yeah, you can. And, um, I, I've, I have really personally enjoyed that path as far as like, as far as watching people do it and also being interested in doing it myself because it is, it's memorable, right? We travel for memories and if I'm staying in a treehouse, that's more memorable than if I'm staying in someone's condo in a building that has 15 of the same condos and they're all rented short-term people. It can still yep. be a fun trip, but it's not as memorable. Yep. No, exactly. And I think that just plays into that rural stay, right? There's just not that many options. Like if you've tried to book a treehouse a week in advance, you can't find one, right? You've got to like find it a year in advance and book it and plan around it. And so there's just, you know, I think it just creates more opportunity in these rural places, easy to drive to a quick weekend at this, you know, random RV thing parked by the river. Like that's cool for three days. And like, you're going to get that thing booked all the time. So I just do think as as people get more creative, like you said, there's going to be more options. And when there's more options, more people are going to be, that's the primary place they search, right? They're going to be primarily, let's see, there's something super funky and cool around alternatively, let's go to the Marriott and go lay by the pool, right? And I think it becomes yep. the primary thing you're looking for instead of sort of a, a second thought for most people. And you made a really good point here that I, w- I want people to, to understand too, is that a lot of time we'll get questions of like, well, I live here and can I really Airbnb here? And he, meaning here is like a rural area or we're not in New York or LA or a hot market or, you know, all these buzzy places. And I always tell people like, if there's a hotel anywhere near you, then then you can have an Airbnb. But I think it goes even further now. If you can create an experience, people will people will come for the accommodation. Some people come for the accommodation and not necessarily the location, right? Um, like it yeah. becomes the destination itself if you have a cool airstream on the side of a river that people can escape to for a weekend, right? Yep. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm getting this question so many times, like, oh, does anybody actually come to my city? Does anybody ever like drive through here? <laughs> like, you'd be surprised. Like, you would be surprised. Um, I was, you know, early on consulting with this, you know, this person who owned a few little places outside of Martha, Texas, 30 minutes away. She was like, come out here, tell me like what I could do with this place. I'm about to get rid of it. It's like bankrupt and dilapidated. And so I, you know, and now I look at her place and she's making like a million dollars a year on these like terrible places in the middle of West Texas, like you, you mentioned. 
And, you know, it, she was, her mind was blown that like, you know, in the middle of that, you know, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> that, like that uh, desert landscape that goes stretches for, you know, 300 miles in every direction, that there were actually people you know, looking to escape, looking for isolation. And, uh, you know, it was a perfect spot for, for a lot of people that she wouldn't have expected. So I hear that question all the time. And I think, you know, well, our platform is really helpful in understanding, you know, what is demand, how many people are coming through there, what's occupancy look like. And so I think people are always surprised that it doesn't have to be a tourist hotspot. And it's more ideal if it's not a tourist hotspot, because in my mind, you don't want to be competing against the hotels, right? Like you want to find the pockets where hotels don't exist is how I think about it. Like travel wants to be everywhere. People want to stay like close to where they want to go, not just where the hotel is. And so I think, especially when you're investing in like, you know, more city suburban sort of environments, you know, you try to find the pockets where there isn't a, a hotel, right? You're trying to figure out where the, that black area is between all of the hotels, the central business district, because that's kind of where you're going to find demand and, and, and no competitive hotel supply. You bring an interesting point up here. I, I want to know what your process is when running a deal on a potential property. Now, obviously you said right now, you don't have any that, that you're just holding on your own, but you know, I'm sure you do this with other people. I'm sure it's it's a. You said you're trying to get your wife into into being an investor. So, like, walk us through what you're doing from from scratch. Like, are you staying to a certain area? Is it is it going to be around where you live just because it's easier? Are you fine branching out everywhere? And then, what are you doing to say, okay, this is a home run? And this is an analogy we've been using throughout the whole season. Like, what's a single? What's a double? And then, what's a home run? You know what? What is a home run for you? How do you find that? Huh. There's, there's a lot of different ways to approach it, right? For me, like I think for me, it's I'm looking for the best return on investment. I don't want to be hands-on. I don't want to ever be called about the property. So, you know, for me, it's like I'm looking at my top three markets that I've identified that I still think have like a good post-corona valuation. I do think you've got to think about that a little bit. Some markets have gotten overheated. I think, you know, places like in Palm Springs, I'm starting to have questions about whether that sort of valuation is still there. So I, I sort of just kind of have to create a little bit of a thesis, like how I think this market is right now. How do I think travel is still going to be going there, you know, over the next couple of years and like making sure home appreciation hasn't gone through the roof too ridiculously, right? And so I'll have a couple markets, right, that I like. I'm always trying to steer my wife away from, you know, ever wanting to go to this property. Like take that out of your equation. Like we're not traveling here. This isn't like where we want to go. This isn't for mm. us and our kids for weeks at a time. So you take all the emotion out of it, right? You take all of this, you know, it doesn't have this, it doesn't have that. The master bedroom's not big enough. Like, no, this is not what we're doing here, right? Uh, and so like that, I think it's really important to understand. Like, are you, are you trying to stay at this place a couple of weeks out of the year, uh, if you are, it's probably not going to be the best investment property. Just, just throwing it out there, right? Yep. You got to be really like ruthlessly mathematical about like this is a pure investment play and not an emotional, emotional buy. Uh, and then I'm sort of looking for some trends in the property itself. I'm looking for things that are probably discounted on a normal residential valuation basis. So I'm looking at things like, is it on a busy street, right? Nobody wants to buy their own primary home on a busy street. You know, is there sort of like noise? Is it in a bad school district? Maybe even a bad crime area, right? Like these are all things going to be driving down, you know, the price for, for a home, for a traditional sort of homeowner, right? And I think you're able to get some good deals there. I'm also looking for just like not 
perfect condition. I don't need the crown molding to be, you know, there or it perfect. I'm looking for more equal size bedrooms, not big master suites. Uh, you know, there's like a sort of a little bit of a list. So I go through where I think this, the value of this property is depressed based off of what a person that wants to stay there for 12 months out of the year is looking for versus somebody staying there for 12 days out of the year is looking for. Um, and so those, those are some of the things I'm looking at was like dialing in the market a, a little bit more in terms of the individual assets. And I would say bigger right now is better. Group travel. How do I get the biggest property? If it's a four bedroom, can I make it a six bedroom? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, can I squeeze 18 people into this place? And knowing that it might only have six or eight most of the time, but I can jack it up for, you know, 18 people if the time's right. Uh, so definitely trying to get on the larger side of the market, just where there's less competition. You can always stand out on, on party size is something, you know, I think about too. So usually going a bit bigger on the property. Yeah. A, a lot of fun things to consider. And I think that you're right that when you look at it, the very first thing we said, I think it was episode one was like, why are you buying this property? Is it for you to use? And also then it pays for itself or makes you a little bit of money but you, you want to use it for yourself or is it straight investment? Because those are two totally different things you'll be looking for. And usually if it's for you, as you mentioned, you're not going to get the same return on investment. That's fine if you don't care. But if you're looking straight investment, you have to realize that unless you and your family or your situation is specifically your avatar, like there's going to be things that you want. And I just had this discussion with a buddy where I was telling him, oh, this is like, three blocks from the beach. It was, I would never stay here. Well, guess what? It's because I live on the beach. So of course I wouldn't stay three blocks. But anyone coming from 20 minutes away is like three blocks to the beach. This is incredible, you know? Uh, yeah. And so even I fall trap into that trap of thinking, oh my gosh, I know so much about this specific area that I know why I wouldn't want this no one coming for three weeks is going to know that or care at all because they're going to say, oh, I'm three blocks from the beach. This is perfect. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's exactly right. Yeah, I think, I think that is the biggest decision and where most people get caught up. It's just because you become emotionally not in, just in the location and the asset, but then in the upkeep about it, you become just like much more like a control freak over everything and every placement decoration and nick and ding. And it becomes like starting to just like control like you just like all of your energy and time is like, that's like my baby, right? Like that's my home. And so like, that's just my investment property and it is what it is. And it's going to be fixed up and it's going to be able to be, you know, remodeled or whatever, Like you just become less emotionally invested in it, you know, like, yeah, like personally invested in it yep. too, which is nice, especially as you have more of these things. Yeah. You're, you're swinging me. It's funny. Heather and I had this discussion, my wife, uh, about buying a place in Pigeon Forge in Tennessee. Obviously, great market, Smokies. Everyone's going to the Smokies, this and that. Found this incredible property there, You know, a compound, $2.5 million. And she's like, I hate Pigeon Forge. Like, It's my least favorite place in America that we've been. And I said, listen, I'm not buying there because I want to go spend time at Ripley's, believe it or not. Um, you know, I, but the numbers just work and, and it's a seven hour drive away from us. So we're not going to be on the ground all the time, you know, and, and that's, that's the reason, one of the reasons I want to buy it versus this place down the road that I can see that, Oh, something happens. Well, let me do, I'll just, I'll just, even though I don't want to, I'll just make my way down there. Right. It's like, 
no, no, no. You know, um, so I think that is it's it's a huge consideration for people of how much you want your your hands in 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 it. And if you want them in it, then look local. If you don't, sometimes you can force your hand out of it by looking far enough away that you just realize you can't do it. Um, for you, then. Once you get the property, like what do you see as the keys to the short-term rental success? Like, what are you saying? Hey, this is why something is going to turn. Like, you found a good market. That's that's first. Find a good location. Get in there. That's going to obviously help something be a home run. But there's what can you do afterwards to make it like make sure that it's a home run? Yeah. This is good, man. It's gonna be my old playbook from like years ago, man. I just geek out back in the game. All the time, We're man. gonna get yeah. off here, and you're gonna go buy it. a property. <laughs> totally, man. Get all my yeah, like old thoughts, all like you know, surfacing again. Um, what I always thought about was like, how am I selling the experience? Right. I always thought that hotels were selling the stuff, the amenities, right? And like, we've got, you know, you've got a microwave, right? Like, yay, you got like kitchen appliances, right? So I was always trying to sell like, hey, when you come here, you're gonna be able to cook a magical meal for your whole family, right? You're gonna be able to like go surf at the beach and I got the beach cruisers right here to go take you down there, right? So I was always selling the, the magic of the experience at the property and never focusing on, this is a four bedroom, 1200 square foot place, you know, three blocks from the beach. Right now, like we're, we're, we're talking about like what you're gonna do when you walk in the door, how are you gonna spend your days and why is this gonna be, you know, the best week of your life, right? And so, and for me, marketing, I just loved marketing, right? Like it was always like, just trying to think about what were the right images, right? What they think the right things to put in the image, like whether to set the table or not, like, you know, you're going to be like making it like you're like, you're actually eating your Christmas dinner here or whatever it is. Right. Like, you know, I think that's, that is key for any property. It's like, I think something that people don't do well is one badass images, make sure you go professional and make sure you, so you know, what dream you're selling there. Are you selling an isolation dream? Are you selling a, a party dream? Are you selling a romantic getaway dream? Like what, what dream are you selling? And so really focusing on that experience and you know, sort of taps into that persona you're selling to throughout the, throughout the listing as well. Yeah. And I think you can do that through photos. My wife is, is the savant at this, you know, it's like the perfectly poured cup of coffee sitting by the fire pit outside, looking at the ocean. It's like, you don't have to tell people that they're going to have a cup of coffee by the fire, looking at the ocean, like that picture, they are putting themselves in that picture saying, yep, I, I want that. They don't care that it's a, like we've had no one ask us how many square feet this house is ever, ever. No one said like, how big's the master bedroom? Like I need the, I need the floor plan. Right. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right there. And I think then the big thing that we were trying to hit home with the season that, that you just touched on too, is like, who, who is your avatar, right? Like, what are they coming to do and who is it? Is it a couple? Is it a family? Is it two families? Is it a group of friends? Whatever it is, make your house the perfect version of that you'll attract others, but like they say in marketing, right? It's like the riches are in the niches. Like, okay, I'm going to get every couple who comes to this Island who wants a romantic upscale getaway. They're coming here. And right. if a family comes with one kid, cool, but that's not who we're marketing to. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's the opportunity too. Everything else is generic. You know, every hotel is generic, every extended stay property is generic. And so you're trying to be whatever the opposite of generic is, right? You're trying to be unique and you're trying to really customize towards that. 
individual, like you said. I'm just trying to think about maybe some other things that were sort of, I was always mulling over. I mean, I guess as the data guy, I mean, obviously I got to say, you know, the revenue management stuff, once you got it dialed in, you know, your customer, you know, your demand, you know, sort of generally, you know, all the opportunities and like, how much can you crank up your Friday and Saturday night stays? Like what really is your shoulder season? Should you just be getting rid of your off season days? Like now, nine months in advance, Mm. knowing that like, Hey, like, nobody's trying to book this thing a week in advance, like, you know, and let me just make sure I'm the cheapest damn property in this market, you know, for January to February when, you know, there's zero travel here. So like really trying to figure out how you're driving, you know, occupancy in the off season, how you're driving rate in the peak season. Uh, I think a lot of people sort of get into the set it, forget it, you know, do a bit of research. Like here's generally high season, low season, here's weekend versus weekday. Uh, you know, the, the automated tools, they're, they're good, they're great, but they don't really know you, your property, your amenities, exactly how you're performing versus your peers. And, you know, they can't A-B test as well as you can. Like, can I get $800 for my Saturday peak season or is really 550 my peak? There's only one way to trial and put it up there for a month and see what happens. And then you can always discount later. So, you know, I was just always super nerdy on, on my price, my like the stays, you know, like I only took week you know, week stays outside of three months. And then like, you know, it start to dial that back. So revenue management just isn't about that daily rate. It's obviously about your sort of like stay and how you're using rate and like the stay in combination to sort of get as few check-ins at the highest value possible, you know, throughout the year. Yep. I couldn't have said it better. That's, that's a thing that even I was overlooking when we were property managing ours to, to a degree, right? I was overlooking it a little bit. Um, and then once I realized like, oh, I should have kept a weekend or two back from the summer to see how high I could have cranked it up, knowing that a month out, three weeks out, I'll just drop it and people will be in there. And, and you know, and so it'll be fun to play with it this year, being at the beach and knowing like, all right, we're going to cr- like, we're crank this up. You're going to book four months in advance. Well, you're going to, yeah. All right. You can have it, but uh, you better pay a pretty penny there. Um, you have are, to be a bit are, of a gambler. I, I thought, you know, like you have to have a like pretty high tolerance for risk in order to do revenue management well. Like you have to know, like, you know, within the last two weeks, like 40% of the bookings come in. I know I'm not booked right now, but like, I'm going to wait till two days out. And I know that book is going to come in because I know the dynamics of my market. I know there's lots of last minute or vice versa. Nobody books two, two days out for a six bedroom property and you're screwed. There's no way you can price yourself into demand for that, that size property. But I always found like my tolerance for risk was really helpful as you know, the, the, the booking window is shortened. People used to book 90 plus days. Now it's sort of less than, it's less than 60. It's like 42 days now. And I think that just continues to get shorter as there's more stuff on the market. And so now you're dealing with like your one property. You don't have the luxury of a hotel that's got a hundred keys and they're sort of course correcting rate as they're sort of looking at pacing year over year. And like they're, they're course correcting on their hundred units. You got one, you got one chance to get it right. And so it takes, you know, a lot of balls to like to get it right, to hold out, to wait for the booking at the right value at the right time. And I, I think that's where a lot of people get nervous as they get, you know, three weeks out. They're like, dude, reduce the rate, $99 a night, get rid of it. And like, no, you gotta, you gotta hold strong, you know? Yep. I think you're right as demand, as demand increases, but also as supply increases, people are no, I mean, I can't tell you the last time I booked an Airbnb that was more than five days out. I just don't do it. It's like, 
okay, I'll find something, you know? And I think a lot of people are going there. Like, yeah, I'm not going to book. It depends if you're taking a huge family trip or whatever that you go to every year, you're probably booking further, further out. But again, most markets, there's going to be types, all different types of properties. And usually people are booking at, that was cool. That's that 42 days out average, uh, average length of, um, I guess what the we booking call window. Yeah. From booking window. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To the check-in date. Yep. Okay. Um, I want to flip it to, to air DNA specifically, because we talked a lot of in gen, in general stuff about short-term rental success, which was awesome. But air DNA is an incredible tool. I, I cannot thank you enough for creating it and the whole team behind it. I know that I'm only using it probably to, I'm going to guess 10, 15, maybe 20% of its capabilities. What are some of your favorite features that give me some that people might know about, but then are there, is there stuff that you're like, Oh, this is, it's not hidden, yeah. but people don't think about using it in this way. Yeah. I think we spent the last year plus is really trying to get a customized experience for individuals, you know, that you can make, we can make it really easy for people to share their Airbnb property with us. You can put your iCal into the system. And then, you know, that's when the, that's when the, the product really unveils itself. And so we're trying to get a lot of people to do that at the moment because we got a lot of cool features that then open up once you do that, right? We've got, you know, comp set, you know, curation. I think it's always interesting for people is like, how do I dial in what my comp set is? Like, who are my 20 to 50 properties that I want to monitor? I want to mirror. I want to make sure how I'm performing against, you know, how do you do that? And then like we can actually use all that data and then customize what your rate recommendations are, right? And so we'll use all that custom comp information. We'll use market data. We'll use all the seasonality history we've got on the market. And then we can actually like curate the, the whatever the algorithm is to support your rates on a daily basis. And so like we're really trying to get into this like recommendation um, engine is what we call it internally, which is like, you know, here's your property. Your every property is a snowflake. You know, they're all different. They got different different review profiles. They got different cleanliness ratings. They got different bed spreads, right? And so the interesting thing about you know switch rentals is they're all unique, right? And so how do we create a really unique experience that understands the property, and understands the right recommendations to make for this property, right? And you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these recommendations are jack your price up or move it down, right? And that's sort of how we think about it right now. And I think what we want to move forward with is you know, what you're actually doing wrong with your property. You know, you've got eight, eight pictures, you should have 18. Or, you know, how do we think about like this in a more sophisticated way now that we know your property, we know your market, and we know what if you're doing it right or wrong, or if it's like decelerating over time, like you probably need to fix it up. Or, you know, like really getting smart about like how do we mm. not just uh, provide some market insights that you like, Good luck. Figure it out. Uh, you know how do we actually tell people explicitly exactly what they're doing right or wrong? Is sort of where we're moving. Um, I think the Rentalizer product we have, we're launching something tomorrow, which is pretty significant updates there, which is loved by all real estate investors. We have over five hundred thousand queries on that a month right now, and so that is. I wonder how many of those are me? Huh? Five hundred thousand. <laughs> I'm probably uh, you know that that is an awesome. If you guys haven't checked it out, I mean, we'll we'll give you all a scoop of how you can do it just at the end of this episode. But um, Rentalizer essentially allows you, and I think this is is this the tool that brings most people to Air DNA like at first? Yeah, it's definitely you know the top of the funnel. How we get everybody into the product. And it's sort of just early in the journey. A lot of people are sort of, Hey, I'm going to buy 
you know, I'm going to analyze 50 different properties. You know, how much do you think this would earn over the next year? What are comps? You know, what is occupancy you know, going to look like over the next 12 months? Like what's my shoulder season, peak season? But really, you know, at the end of the day, is like how well can we dial in what the property would earn as a short-term rental property, right? And that's a pretty interesting problem to solve. We spent, you know, six years trying to think about how do we do that and how do we define comps and like what's similar and what's the underlying home value, which, you know, we're implementing soon and you know, really trying to make sure we can do that well. It's never easy, right? You know, if you set up a property and you spend six months dialing in everything and somebody else buys a property, you know, puts some Ikea crap in there and says like, eh, it's going to be the exact same as, the, as your property. It's not going to happen, right? And so that's a lot of the complication building out that estimate is like, you know, how do you get rid of the outliers? How do you figure out like what this thing is like how much confidence do we have in like this being a lot of comps that like mirror this property and uh it's a fun problem to solve I, you know it definitely brings out the data nerd in me a couple of features we're launching i think tomorrow is sort of a historical rentalizer estimate so like how is this rentalizer uh, estimate changed over the last couple of years okay uh, so loving that i i've yeah. always wanted that because you know when you go on zillow or whatever and it says like even if this estimate is nowhere near what it should be or whatever, it, it shows you the historical. Here's what we've thought over the last three years. I'm like, this is cool. Yeah. So it'd be exactly that. It's really going to help people understand like what's happening pre-COVID, during COVID, are we trailing off of COVID? And so I think that's going to be super interesting as we think about like, do like normal travel patterns return or these places still hot? And so like be a really great place on a monthly basis. You can see if, you know, those, uh, you know, I don't know what you pigeon for Tennessee. Like, is it still, you know, the hottest place in the world to go travel in two years? Answer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. But yeah, pigeon forage is great by the way. And also just like a confidence interval. So we're going to put in like a, a low estimate, high estimate. So we can okay. show if that's a really, if that's a really tight, you know, sort of uh, band, then we feel pretty confident about that. And it's wider than like, I don't know. There's not another property for 20 miles. And so this is our best guess. So it's getting people a little bit more insight on how confident we are about those revenue estimates. Yeah. I love that because I'll give you an example from our own life. We were looking for a place in the mountains of North Carolina because we didn't want to be in Pigeon Forge because it's Pigeon Forge. So I'm like, well, let's look in North Carolina. But I know no investor friends in this area at this point. And we found a property like, this looks great. You know, Rentalizer was spitting out to us like ninety six thousand. I'm like, oh, okay, this is a slam dunk at ninety six thousand. But I have no, no one to back this up. Like, there's not a single person I can go to that say, hey, what does your property do? What would Rentalizer say it would do to to say, yeah, this works? And if we had had probably just one person to confirm it, I I, I might have pulled the trigger. I probably would have. Conversely. In Tennessee, where I know people who are investing, I can say, all right, this has a three bedroom here is going to do this. What is yours doing? Okay. Yeah. I feel really confident in those numbers because I've, I've had them backed up. Um, what, what would you say to some, I mean, you're kind of getting at it with a confidence index, which is cool, but what would you say to someone who is in that situation? We're like, okay, I've got the air DNA numbers. I've got the rentalizer numbers. I, I see this number, let's call it 96,000 a year, right? That's the number that we saw. You know, what is that number telling them? Is that the median of, okay, this is what an average property does? Is this telling you, hey, this is what it'll do if you do it well? And where do you see there being high confidence versus low confidence in that number? Yeah. 
my data scientists are probably going to tell me I'm totally wrong on this now. They probably made it way smarter than I did, you know, four years ago. What, what we originally thought about was like, let's put this at like the 75th percentile. Anybody who's using our product is going to be thoughtful about it, is going to use the data product, is going to try to do this professionally, is going to perform better than average, right? So we sort of put it at this 75th percentile is what it used to spit out. It's probably all these standard deviations and crazy things going on now. Uh, so it's probably more complicated than that. Um, and then sort of how we think about the band around that is really about just how many outliers are there, right? If you sort of look at the plot of every property, are some making 200 and then there's other ones making 45. And if that's like, there's a lot of like just variance in like how, what four bedrooms are doing in that local market, then we're saying, hey, like we don't, we don't know if this is like, the lake side properties doing this and you're on the mm. other side of the street and like you got to dive into the comps and see like for yourself like why there's a lot of variants here and that's why we provide like up to 12 comps right you're going to see some that are doing 185 and some doing 85 and right you got to be able to figure out is is that you know why there's usually a reason and, and i'm not saying we're going to be 100 percent you know accurate on the revenue either right maybe one out of 20 properties we might just be totally messing up because the algorithm is is not working on the property. Like the property is, like an example is, there's a, a consultant and he travels every Monday through Thursday and it, you know he books his you know, property then, but then he blocks it on the weekends because that's when he actually lives there, right? Our model's like, I don't know what to do with this, right? We think it's getting booked every weekend uh, and it's available every week, right? Um, and so there's like little things like that will mess up. But we think looking at the comps, you know, making sure you're sort of looking at the underlying properties that are building up that estimate, you know, it's a good way to validate the numbers. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you that question of, I, I assumed that, you know, I, but again, I don't know. I'm not the smartest guy when it comes to software. So maybe, maybe your robots are way more intelligent than I think, but when it comes to pulling the, the data, if, if something's blocked off on Airbnb, there's no way to tell if, for example, like I have this house blocked off right now because I'm living in it. And so that data is going to show that this is this is rented or could be rented, um, right? Like there's no way to tell when it's blocked off, I guess I should say manually versus a reservation like a, a through Airbnb or VRBO. Uh, you'd be surprised. Uh, yeah, no, we, okay. we, we know with 96% accuracy, whether it's an owner block or whether it's an actual reservation. And, you know, that's really our core technology that we've developed over the last seven years and why we're, you know, market leaders. We actually nerded out on this core problem for um, almost seven years now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is All the right. core problem, right? Is like when a property goes from available to unavailable, how far in advance is that? Like how many days is it? Did it have a net change in reviews, you know, uh, last month, you know, after that set of block days went available? What's the seasonality look like? You know, how many reviews, like how many ratings does this person have? How many properties does he have? Like, you know, all this stuff goes in this big machine learning algorithm. It's a random forest thing. And then it says, spits out reservation, not reservation, uh, based off about like 20 different attributes. And so that's how we're sort of deciphering, you know, what, a, what, a, what an unavailable thing is in the calendar. You know, whether that's a reservation, what the, what the value of that reservation is. Okay, that's cool. I mean, hey, listen, I know robots are smarter than me. So I, I'm like, <laughs> someone's got to be able to figure this out, right? Um, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a really neat neat tool, this confidence level thing that you're putting on the Rentalizer. Um, and if you guys don't know what Rentalizer is, essentially it, it is the top of the funnel for our DNA. You, you put in any address in the US, I, right? I, can it, 
is it World, worldwide yeah. or yeah it is okay worldwide, yeah. and uh the the free version of air dna will spit out what what you guys estimate it would do as a short-term rental and then to get all the comps and all the stuff that scott's talking about which are well worth its weight in gold because if you're going to do this for real you you should look at comps. Like, I mean, you could see a number, but you should say, hey, what are the 12 ones that they're comping out? Oh, these are very similar. Or as you mentioned, this is an outlier. Uh, some of that's yeah. in the premium products and stuff like that, but an absolutely fantastic tool that completely changed the way that I looked at short-term rentals because I was doing all that stuff. And you probably were yourself before AirDNA, like, oh, I'm in Philly and I'm looking at people's calendars and how much are they charging? But you know, what they're charging, you don't know if it's booked because it just gives an average daily rate and it, right. you know, very manual and very like at best, it's an okay guess at best. Right. Lots of back of the napkin math going on. Yeah. I, <laughs> I was, I was there too. Right. Yeah. That was definitely the core problem we're solving. And if you know, if you're off by 20% on revenue on a, you know, million dollar home purchase, that's, that's bad news, right? Like that's like profitable or unprofitable, you know, vacation rental. So yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we came in to solve. And one of the initial sort of ideas we had is how do we get smarter around that investment, um, investment, you know, underwriting the performance, like how do we get these dialed in? And once we got it dialed in for consumers, like how do we get that dialed in for, lenders how do we get that you know dialed in for other people that can actually facilitate more transactions make it easier for investors to get financing you know and so we're starting to get interest from you know the big lenders and saying hey i got a bunch of airbnb investors calling me about these things they're sending me your report like what's happening here <laughs> like what's going on like you know what kind of product can i actually offer what kind of confidence you have in this and so we're super excited about like not just sort of having this tool for the everyday person, but how do we get this in front of every agent, broker, lender, you know, so that we can actually sort of like speed up the, the you know, the, the, the cycle for people investing and make sure everybody sort of has the same information to play out for. Please, please, please get it in front of appraisers and lenders and everyone who I show the data to and they look at me like, uh, you don't have a long-term lease tenant in here. I'm like, you realize I'm doing like 10x what a long-term lease tenant would do, right? But they don't, yeah. you know, if they don't know what they don't know and and it's slow to catch up. But I, I'm with you that the more confidence everyone has in a product like AirDNA, both on the investor side and then anyone who's lending or appraising or anything, uh, the better, right? Because it it just proves its worth to everyone and and allows people who want to invest to do it to do it quicker and easier. Absolutely. And there's a lot of lenders sort of uh, waking up right now. And so I'll talk to you about some future sponsors for your podcast. Okay. All right. All right. I love that. All right. Sounds good. Man, yeah, didn't know I'd be getting some, some other business stuff out of here. All right. Here's a question for you. You can have a short-term rental anywhere in the world that you don't already have one. Where are you going? Like, what's the dream property? Uh, it's probably biased off a recent trip, but something on the beach in Tulum sounds pretty good. Uh, rates are insane. The market's cool place to be. Uh, and people are paying just a boatload of money for, for properties there. So yeah, probably something outside of the US just to spice it up a little bit. And Tulum's a pretty cool market these days. Okay. Do you, have you done any investing internationally, like on your own or, or probably through your, through your REITs and all, but anything on your own? I haven't. I haven't. Um, I haven't personally. Yeah, I have some friends that are in in, in Mexico, that sort of Tulum area, or in Belize. 
you know, it's, you know, there's challenges there. And I don't know if I could talk articulately about all those challenges, but yeah, you're not going to find a good lender in uh, Belize. I can tell you that much. <laughs> so there are some challenges, right? You got to pay a lot of money up front. There's a lot of taxable, you know, taxation differences. There's not a lot of tax savings. And so, you know, it's that probably more of an emotional buy that I've Hey, that's cool. Hey, this was the dream. I, I, I'm not, I'm yeah. not trying to throw, uh, be a wet blanket because I also want to go yeah. international. I just haven't yeah. yet as well. And for, for the same reasons, you know, where you say like, hey, this air DNA printout is not going to really work for the real estate agent in Costa Rica. Yeah. He's just saying, well, uh, you got to pay all case? cash. Yeah. yeah. Where's your briefcase? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Then for you, when you're staying in Airbnbs, what are you looking for as a guest? Like what are, or what are ones that you've stayed in that have stuck out to you? We've used this word memorable. I use, I like to use the word remarkable, right? Like what has stuck out to you as being like, yep, these people nailed it. This is going to be really basic. It's really basic. But in the first like 10 minutes, if I can't like get into the place, find my Wi-Fi, and like, just like get settled into the place. Like I've, I'm pissed. Right. And so like, I'm always amazed, like eight out of 10 people don't have the Wi-Fi coding where I've got to like text message somebody for damn Wi-Fi code. It drives me absolutely bonkers. So for me, if I can turn on the TV, I can find Wi-Fi and I can get into the house. Like I am a happy, I don't have high standards. Right. So like for me, I just always am perplexed about how many people miss the basics. Once you get to the first 30 minutes of somebody's arrival your like likelihood to get a five-star review if they haven't bothered you about something is like astronomically higher. So you just got to nail first 30 minutes. How hard is that? Like we know what everybody's doing the first 30 minutes. Think about what you're doing. Make sure it's perfect. Uh, it never is. It, like, I honestly, it's like maybe three out of 10 I go to. Like I feel like, oh yeah, had no issues, no problems. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Just getting in. Good getting point. In. I, good point. I, I'm thinking through our properties now and I'm like, Huh. Well, how are they getting the Wi-Fi code? I, I assume in an automated message before they get in, but yeah, how hard is it to put it in on the wall, whatever, on the check-in, in the check-in book, what have you? Yeah, chalkboard. That's all people care about, right? When they check in, where's the Wi-Fi? <laughs> they want to have it right there on the refrigerator, right? Uh, so yeah, basic things like that are, are, are some things. That's not extravagant, but yeah, I go to nice Airbnbs too, but I still like, you know, just with all the track record history of like, you know, writing about these things for so long, I think I'm always just looking for a TV that powers on with one button. Like, why do I have 17 remotes here? Like, I'm never going to figure this out. Uh, you know, just simple things like that are you know, always drive me crazy. All right. Something for me to, as soon as I get off here, I'm going to make sure I'm going to go back and, and kind of go through the check-in process. And that's something we re actually recommend uh, people do is now you might not do it to this degree, but stay in their Airbnbs at least once every six months to, to feel what it is like as a guest. And I, I will add now, when I tell people like actually go through, like sign yourself up, not that you had to pay through Airbnb, but like go through it as the check-in process. Like what are the automated messages telling you? When you get there, what's happening? Like, pretend you've never been there. Pretend you don't have the Wi-Fi stored to your phone yet. Whatever, yeah. and uh, and what's it like? Because you're right, I, it can be as pretty and awesome as you want. It can have an amazing hot tub, but if you're getting in and you can't turn the lights on, and you're calling someone for the TV, and you don't yeah. know where the refrigerator is because it's hidden in a cabinet or something, we I don't know. You know, yeah. you're starting to say this is this is not enjoyable. Um, yeah, totally. The, all the anxiety of staying in the vacation rental is in that, like, 
moment you walk up to the door and the moment you open the door, right? You had about 30 seconds where there's like, it's anxiety ridden and people are judging this whole decision. And that person that booked this property, everybody's looking at them like, you better not have effed up this, this booking here, right? And so like in like that one minute, like a lot of decisions are made. So that front room, like the access and that one, when you open the door open, like, ah, oh, it's beautiful, you're done. And then everything else could be after that. <laughs> that's my, that's my advice. Yeah. Awesome. That is, that is really, really good advice. I like that you didn't, Hey, it doesn't have to be extravagant. You're, you're a man of simple pleasures here, right? Wi-Fi and a one button TV and Scott's giving you a five-star review. So if you have that, get a hold of them. They'll give you a five-star. Um, Absolutely. Just as we wrap up here, what, what are the places that you want to travel to next or, or that you are traveling to next? Is there anything on the horizon for you? A uh, good question. Yeah, I think you've mentioned Costa Rica previously. That's sort of been on our on our roadmap. That was our trip canceled right in March of last year, and so that's sort of the the, the family trip that we're looking forward to. A little bit of everything, not that original, but we're not getting that far out of uh, Dodge. Direct flights from Denver don't help. Uh, so that's what we're looking for. Like a little bit of surfing, a little bit of uh, rainforest, a little bit of uh, hanging out. That's that's sort of our next trip. I got an office in Barcelona, so I make it out that way, you know, a few times a year as well. So I get sort of my European fix, you know, going out there. And then, you know, most of my family trips are somewhere Mexico or Costa Rica-ish these days. Tough deal, throwing an office in Barcelona. Was that your decision? Were you like, I love Barcelona. I'm going to put an office here just so I have to go visit. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Um, my wife thinks that that was probably part of how, how it went down. But, uh, you know, you know, I just had an early employee that didn't have a U.S. visa. And uh, he just plunked down in Barcelona as a place that he thought he could scale it up and that he liked to uh, he liked the nightlife at. And so he scaled it up over there in Barcelona. So I go over a few times a year to go enjoy what he's what he's established out there. Awesome. What is you, one of your biggest travel mishaps? And if it has to do with a short-term rental, that, that, that'd be cool too, but it doesn't have to. What, what have you done in your travel life where you're like, oh yeah, this will be a story for the ages? I've got a lot of them, as I'm sure you do too. Uh, since we talked about that Bangkok trip, uh, there's a lot on that trip, let me tell you. Um, I don't know. They're all my fault, right? So there's not like anybody else's fault besides my own. That, uh, hey, that's good. Once, that makes a great mishap because yeah. you can't blame anyone else, right? <laughs> They're always usually around two or three in the morning, right? That's how they always happen. But yeah, I remember one time in Bangkok without my friend. We got separated. I didn't know where I was staying. I called the, you know, the taxi cab and tried to drop me off. I thought he was like taking me to like rob me somewhere. I jumped out in the middle of Da Nang, in the middle of nowhere at four in the morning, not being able to walk. And just being like, I'm, I'm, I'm in Nam here. This is like legit Nam. I have no idea how to get home. So I walked for like three hours, just passed down the roadside. Like, you know, those, those are sort of more of my, my early, you know, my 20s travel stories. They're like, how did I survive Vietnam? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. So they're, they're usually my, my fault. Uh, mm-hmm. nothing, uh, <laughs> nothing that's not outside of my uh, bad decisions. Sure, sure. What do you guys have then coming up in the pipeline for AirDNA? You mentioned by the time this episode comes out, actually, the few things that you already mentioned will be will be implemented. Is there anything else that you're excited about that's coming out or that you think that you're working towards? Oh man, we're we're gonna try to put some like add this into AirDNA. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting for your your listeners is you know, 
being more proactive on the real estate that we're uh, recommending to buy. So, you know, we're thinking a lot about that. We pretty much have every, you know, property in the U.S. now. We can sort of look at what's active on the market. We can, you know, proactively run our rentalizer estimates on that. And then we could sort of just make that a more streamlined process. Like here's the best property in Vision Forge. Here's the best vacational manager. Here's the agent that's like, can get this deal done for you. Here's the lender. Here's the, like, here's the package, right? Mm. And so to be able to sell that package uh, in just a much more efficient way is, you know, something that we will be building. Our building will be releasing, you know, sometime in the first six months of next year. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, the, the more you can do for people, right? The more turnkey you can make it. And the easier the experience, the more that they're just going to say, why would I ever leave AirDNA, right? Like why, like this is, this is more than just data. It's actually, you're creating experience for them, just as we talked about short-term rentals being experienced, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We think that this, you know, the short-term rental investing is, is, is complicated. It's difficult. And that's why there's still a great opportunity. You know, if you're going to buy in different cities with different people and different agents and, out of your like vicinity where you can't manage it. You got to find different managers in each place. Like that's complicated. Right. And so we think with our data, we have a lot of insights on like who are agents actually specialize in this, who's actually the best vacation rental manager in this market. You know, that's not like Vacasa. No, no, no slam to Vacasa, but you know, usually like more boutique local managers are actually better. They just have a little bit you know better read on, on the, on the area and a little bit more attention to your property. So how do we recommend who's actually the best in each location is something that we're working on from a data perspective as well. Yeah, I think that's our biggest hesitation towards going out of the era we're in now is that we have an awesome property manager here. And so we're saying, can we find that property manager in Pigeon Forge, in, you know, whatever, insert anywhere in the country? Because I think people like you and I are, are driven by curiosity. People listening are driven by curiosity because they're travelers. That, that's, that's why they want to get into this because they're curious about learning new things, having new experiences. And I want to have properties around the country or around the world, right? But there's a lot of hurdles to jump through. And one of them is a property manager. So yeah, the more you can provide, the better. I'm, hey, I'm here for it. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for mm-hmm. it, Scott. So um, yeah, I think actually, so the, this month, I think we're releasing... I uh, just top property managers and, and it'll be a free feature in market Minder on the overview tab. We'll have who are the top five property managers in this location. It'll be based off of how many listings they have, but also like ratings, reviews that they have. So you can actually see like who's the highest rated person that they have a lot of reviews in this market. And so we think that's sort of a, you know, a free thing that we should give out right now. And then if you want to do a deeper analysis later, we'll figure out like, you know, how to do that. But yeah, that should be coming out in the next few weeks on the platform too. Whew. All right. All right. I'll be saving my, saving my shekels to go buy somewhere else now that I know, uh, <laughs> I know I can trust you guys. Well, yeah, don't forget everyone. Uh, if you're listening to this, when this first airs, you can head to airdna.co, um, airdna.co, use the promo code EPOP. That gets you 20% off your first three months. If you upgrade to any of the premium versions, uh, like we said, the rentalizer is free. So you can go in, get your feet wet, run some properties, get to check out uh, all the free stuff. That's how I first got involved and was like, oh my gosh, if they're giving me this for free, like what happens when I pay for it? And then I paid for it. It's like, oh, this is way, way better. Uh, this is amazing. You know, so um, you just use that code EPOP, you get 20% off any of the plans that you pick for the first three months. Um, so, Scott, 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, man, so much for joining me today and uh, creating a tool that that can help everyone who's looking to get in the short-term rental game, whether they're getting their first property or their 50th, but it's really about helping them make the right decision that allows them to build this lifestyle that you were talking about, this lifestyle of freedom to either replace your income to leave your job, whether it just gives you extra income to to go have fun, to travel. Um, that's really what it's all about. So thank you so much. Yeah, great being here, Trav. Thanks for carrying the, the torch from me, you know, from my little ebook way back when. Uh, you've done a really great job of sort of continuing this forward and making sure we're inspiring sort of the next generation of entrepreneurs here. So I appreciate your work, man. Hey, I appreciate it. I'm glad we got to unearth some of the old Scott thoughts from way back when, right? Of of what yeah. it was like to, to run your own and make them magical. So appreciate you coming on. Thank you everyone for tuning in today for the continued support that makes us the top rated travel podcast in the world. And until next time, happy house hunting. I saw you on my way through On my way through I saw you And I'll see you again Someday